The week I was ordained into the ministry, I was 25 years old. A minister who was 75, a conservative CRC minister actually in Sioux Center, Iowa, came over to see me three days after my ordination. And uh, I had a piece of paper beside me and a, and, and a pen ready to learn from him. And so five minutes into the conversation, I said to him, look, I'm very young. I'm very inexperienced. You've been in the ministry 50 years. Um, I'm ready to take notes. Tell me <laughs> what you've learned in 50 years. Give me advice. And uh, he just said to me, I can give you all the advice in one word. I said, one word? What's that? He said, pray. Well, I knew you had to pray. But he said this. He said, no matter how familiar you are with your subject, no matter if it's that confession of faith class that you taught 40 years in a row and you know almost exactly what you're going to say, every time you do something for the Lord, you first get on your knees and pray. And then he said this statement that I, I never forgot. Have the humility, always, to recognize that you can't do it. You can only do it with the Lord's help. That advice meant more to me at that time than and, and still today, than if he had given me a whole catalog of 25 things to do in the ministry. We need the humility to be praying servants, slaves of the Lord. So I want to look at that with you. Just, I'm tempted to try to cover this whole passage. That's impossible for me. You guys, some of you guys can do this. You can go through 10 verses at a time. I can't do that. So... Bear with me, and we're just going to do 19a. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations. So my title is Bonafide Slave of the Lord Ministry, or you could say Servant Ministry. First, the slave's humility. Second, the slave's tears. And third, the slave's temptations. Now, Paul gathers these Ephesian elders around him. He's very much aware that he's the veteran ministry, minister among them. But he's gathering them around him to say farewell and to give them advice. He has a little bit more than one word to say to them. But it's rich, rich advice. And they're very teachable, aren't they? Very teachable. They're, they're clinging to his words. They're weeping as he says goodbye to them. He's got a bond with them. This is just a beautiful, beautiful picture of the bond that can develop between a minister and his sheep. But when Paul summarizes his authentic ministry, it's interesting that he doesn't talk about his accomplishments. He just says, I served you. I served the Lord. Ministry is all about service. It's all about, and actually the word here is doulos, the slave word. I, I, I've been a slave of the Lord. I've watched his hand <laughs> Whenever his hand moved and said, go this way, Paul, or go that way, I, 
I, I was a slave of the Lord. I served him with humility, with tears, with temptations. So what is humility? Well, humility is obviously not an outward show, walking around with eyes on the ground. And, but humility is lowliness of mind. It's a quality of the heart. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a perspective by which we don't put ourselves in our heart of hearts above our people. We're here to serve them and to serve the Lord. And we're serving the Lord when we serve them. And we need this attitude then, this, this mindset of always doing the will of our Savior, having a sober and just estimate of ourselves and our own abilities, while remembering that anything we do that is worthwhile is simply a gift of God. What have you that you have not received? And if you've received it, wherefore do you boast? So there's never any reason to give credit to ourselves. We're simply slaves of the Lord. And all that we have is from him. So Paul's a model, a model for us here. For humility is the heartbeat of service in the kingdom of God. Is what Jesus says, basically, in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And once we grasp that, then we understand Augustine's attitude when someone asked him, what are the three things the church needs most today? And his answer was humility, humility, humility. Now, Paul's humility here is evident in a couple of important ways. First, in Acts 20, he is showing that he loves obedience more than life. He loves obedience more than life. 22, 24, he says, I'm going bound to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will befall me there, except the Holy Spirit tells me wherever I go, and people are telling me through the Holy Spirit, you're going to be in bonds, you're going to be in afflictions. And then he says this amazing statement, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear to myself, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Actually, that's, this is the exact text that God used powerfully in my life to compel me to accept the call to come to Grand Rapids. This text completely overturned my life. I count my life secondary. I must go because I must be that slave of the Lord, Paul is saying. So he doesn't consider his life of, of great value. He considers obedience to do the will of God, to be in the place God wants him to be. That is of great value. So what does that mean practically? I'm not saying you don't have to look at secondary circumstances at all or your gifts at all. But what I am saying, and I think Paul is saying, is that 
The key thing in life is to be where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. And so the way to handle a call, when you get a call, hopefully in a few years or next year, whenever you finish here, it's not to tally up all the things. Is, is it a better climate? Is, is there peace in the church? Is everything? You know, God's not calling you to go to a church that's absolutely wonderful and has peace and doesn't have a terrible lot of need for a minister. God may be calling you to go to a very troubled church in a climate you don't like and your wife doesn't like. These things are secondary. The important thing is that you have the conviction, you know in the depths of your soul, you are where God wants you to be. Have the humility to say, Lord, thy will be done. Secondly, Paul delights in giving more than in receiving. That's so abundantly plain, 33, 34, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or peril. He was a tent maker. I mean, imagine that. You're the greatest apostle in the whole worldwide church. Uh, you're the greatest evangelist. You're number one. No doubt about it. Paul says, uh, you know what? When I come by, I'm not going to ask you. Are you going to pay me for preaching? I'm just... I'm just going to serve. In fact, I'm going to be so careful. I'm going to actually make money on the side. So you, you, you don't misunderstand me. I'm not going around for any financial gain. I, I get my joy in giving, not in receiving. You've got to love the ministry so much that you do it all for nothing. If you didn't have to have a little bit of money to live. Money is just so puny, so secondary. Now you need enough to live, of course, but that's never what moves you, never what drives you. You want to give, you want to spread the word of God everywhere, everywhere. You are willing to spend and be spent, Paul is saying. I serve the Lord with all humility of mind. It, it begins in the mind, my attitude, my way of thinking. And you see, when, when that attitude is in you, people will, you don't have to trumpet it. <laughs> That's not humility. But people will pick it up off of you. This man's willing to serve. This man wants to give. This man is concerned that the gospel goes out around the world. This man wants every family in the church, every soul. You want your people walking out of church saying, my minister loves my soul more than I do. Humility of mind. And that's what's attractive about the gospel. When the minister, and through the minister, impacting the elders, the deacons, the church, has this humility of mind. So that hopefully, no church is perfect, no minister is perfect, but hopefully an attitude of humility develops in the whole congregation. The whole congregation. My brother, who's investigated hundreds of schools in his life, he's, he's told me quite often that within 15 minutes, he says, with entering a school building, he doesn't even have to meet the principal. But he says, I can tell you something about his personality by just the, the vibes I pick up and the attitude I, I feel in the school. 
Now, that may be a slight exaggeration. But the point is, you're going to be a leader in the church. And you will have a chance to impact the attitude of your elders, your deacons, your people. And if you stay long enough, the flavor of your attitude will permeate through the whole congregation, which is a scary thing, but it's also a beautiful thing. So Paul has this humility of mind that is, is running through his ministry. And that's a Christ-centered humility, isn't it? Let this mind be in you, Philippians 2, that was in Christ Jesus. Go humble himself. And you, you know the rest of that beautiful text. When I was 17 years old, I went to Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and uh, stayed in the home of one of the elders of our church there, who was one of the most godly, genuinely pious men I've ever met in my life. And uh, I just had this wonderful visit with him. And he was the first one who actually got me to open up and pour out my soul as to how the Lord converted me. And later on in, in the second evening of our conversation, he just looked at me and said this, now, boy, he called me boy, but it wasn't derogatory. He just said, now, boy, tell me, how is the Lord calling you to the ministry? I was like dumbfounded. I was 17 years old, and next youngest minister was 50-something. How did he know? But you see, he just had such a loving spirit. He's just so longing that God would send younger ministers into the denomination. He didn't know, but he was just feeling me out. But he was just so humble about it that I just poured out my soul to this man who I didn't even know days before. And then later on, one of the elders told me this wonderful story about him. He said it was a very, very recalcitrant member in the church who wouldn't repent, had, had, had done something wrong, but wouldn't admit it. And they had to discipline him, had him under quiet censor, trying to get him to repent. He just dug in his heels. So all of the three elders went to see him. First elder, he just yelled and got angry. And second elder yelled and got angry. And then this man, his name was Mr. Marcus. He said, well, I, I certainly can't bring him to repentance. Only the Lord can, but I, 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 will, I will visit. And the man started to yell and so on. And, and he, he did something. I'm not recommending that you do. But just to show you his humility, he looked at the brother in a soft voice and he said, um, I'm going to lay down in front of you now. He said, just walk all over me. And he got, started getting down on his knees to lay down. And the man just broke. He started weeping, and he confessed his sin. He was won over by humility. It's amazing. But that's the kind of man he was. That's the kind of man Paul was. Paul could be very firm, but he could also be, it was not contradictory to humility. Sometimes firmness is needed. 
for the welfare of souls. But there should be even in the communication of the firmness, I think Paul's example is saying to us, a, a loving humility, not standing above people, getting beside them. And then Paul says, tears. Isn't that interesting? Slaves, tears. I was with you with all humility of mine and with many tears, not just a few, many tears. I yearn for your salvation. There are times when life's pain and suffering and criticism wrenches tears from our eyes and groans from our souls. But we ought not think that to be unusual. Christ, Hebrews 5, 7, offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Now, Paul doesn't talk a lot about his tears. He doesn't trumpet his tears. But he's saying farewell to them. He's, he's, he's telling them, I've wept over your souls. He's not doing that to say, oh, poor me. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer now. No, he says, none of these things move me. I'm going to Jerusalem that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry. He's persevering to the end through tears. Now, why are tears needed? I'm not focusing on tears from the eye. You can have tears in the heart. You, you know what I mean. Verse 31, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He's weeping for precious souls to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Simeon says, with this humility of mind, he blended compassion for their souls with his tears and his supplications. So Paul is not weeping for himself. He's like Jesus. Weep not for yourselves, O daughters of Jerusalem, but weep for yourselves and for your, your children. Well, how are we to weep? Well, certainly we're to weep for God's people. We feel their afflictions. We feel their burdens. And we love our people. And they're in great strife. We're burdened. Many of Paul's epistles are stained with tears for fellow believers. But also, you could weep to see your people grow in grace. To, you, you yearn to have them cl coming closer to Christ. That's your real wages. Your real remuneration is when you see God's people grow in grace. We had a minister's meeting yesterday, and one of the, one of the ministers in our church said about a, a, an older member of our church who probably doesn't have long to live. He got a smile on his face. He said, but hasn't she grown a lot through her afflictions in the last couple of years and coming closer to Christ and growing in assurance? And we just kind of all smiled and said, yes, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see a sheep of God grow in maturity grow in maturity. So we have to set the example in the congregation. When one member suffers, we all suffer, beginning with the pastor. The worst thing a pastor can do is be attached as a minister, but be detached in his mind and his emotions. And you know what? That will catch up with you. You can't, you can't fake that detachment. People will, people will feel that. 
Paul doesn't say, have a, have a measure of sympathy, but be like a professional doctor, keep a distance. I've struggled with that a lot in my life, especially when you have 13 people with cancer at one time. How do you feel the burden of all of them and so on and so on? And, but you know what? I've, I've just learned over the years that I don't want to be like that doctor who can distance himself. I, I, want, I want to feel what my people feel. They're, they're, they're my family. They're, they're my flock. Can you imagine saying to one of your children, I don't want to feel your pain, but your, your people are your family. You've, you've got to feel. Paul doesn't say have a measure of sympathy. He says, weep, weep. And so when you're praying for your people in need and you're with them, don't try to force yourself to hold back those tears as you feel their need. It's not so bad if you have some tears drop from your eyes as you're storming the mercy seat with them crying out to God to intervene, to do exceeding abundantly above all that, all that you can ask or think. And you know what? Those kinds of prayers, they do so much good for your people. Have you ever thought about this? That many of God's people struggle with prayer the same way we do. Only they struggle even more because they can't find the words often. And we find words. We struggle to make sure we're sincere and our prayers go above the ceiling. But when you can pour out your heart to a needy believer for that believer's welfare in soul and body, it's amazing how many times just a, just a sincere, earnest prayer will, will move that believer to genuine tears himself. And, and you can feel it in their demeanor. You can feel it in their handshake. You can feel it in their eyes. They are so grateful for that prayer. And isn't that half of our calling? We are to give ourselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. So these tears are a reflection, whether they pour out of our face or they're just in our heart. They're a reflection of our sincere love for our people. And that is an imperative in the ministry, to love your people. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, 11, oh, ye Corinthians, just even, even that, oh, <laughs> ye Corinthians. He's feeling out of love their needs. Our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged for you. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? I wonder what my spiritual life would be like if I wasn't a minister. It's kind of a scary thought for me sometimes. But my people and their needs are a huge help to me in my own spiritual pilgrimage. Because when you feel those needs and, you, and it moves you to prayer, it, it revives your own soul. You know, it's not just me serving the people. We're serving the Lord. It's the people are a service to me. And I've said it in long-term ministry. You can, you can say this. I've said it to a number of my people. You have no idea how much you mean to me, how much your faithful love and your prayers for me and your support for me over all these years. You have no idea how much you mean to me. And I mean it. 
So it's a two-way two street, a love that begets love. And then we're brokenhearted, not just for God's people at times, but we are also brokenhearted for the lost. Oh, there are certain people in my congregation. I understand what Paul says with tears. I've prayed for and prayed for and prayed for. A couple of them are still in their 80s and they're still unsaved. And I love them, but I long to see them come to liberty. And I bring them the gospel again and again and again. Oh, yes, happy times. When that 92-year-old walks down the aisle and comes to Lord's Supper for the first time. I've had that too. Overwhelming joy. But oh, there's always, there's always those lost ones still that you grieve over, you weep over. For many, Paul says, I tell you, I now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. George Whitfield often wept in his sermon, not to the point of being a distraction, but he often wept as he was preaching. Someone kind of challenged him on it one time, and he said this. He said, you blame me for weeping, but how can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves, although your mortal, immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? That's it. I think it was here about two years, maybe three, and uh, teaching catechism class to 70 ninth to 12th graders every Sunday morning. And I just had this burden that I wasn't getting through. They just seemed to assume that, you know, salvation wasn't for young people. That was the culture in, in the church. It was when you get older. And that just burdened me. I talked to them about it and talked to them about it. Finally, one Sunday, totally unplanned, I got five minutes into my lesson. And I was just overcome by the lostness of almost all the young people. I was just overcome by it. And I began to weep for them in their presence. I, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop it. I just beseeched of them. And I left my notes. And I, I just left my notes completely. I just said to them, like, you're traveling to eternity. You could die tomorrow. There's only one way to live. You need to find Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins. What's, is there something wrong with my ministry? Am I not getting through to you? Don't you see? Don't you understand? Don't you believe the Bible? And I was just pleading with them. And um, the next day, I got a letter from one of the members of the class, and I got a phone call from one of the mothers. And both were just overwhelmingly encouraging to me at that point. The letter said, don't despair of us. Your ministry is making an impression upon us. We just don't dare talk to each other about it yet. Wow. That was, wow, that was so good. Such a, such a joy. Gave me courage to go on. But then the mother said, mother called and she said, uh, what went on yesterday morning? So I said, well, I just felt the burden of their souls and, well, I guess so, she said. My daughter's never said a word to me about the Lord her whole life. And she came home and she said, you know, that new minister of ours, he loves my soul more than I do. 
She said she was so shocked. She said, what happened? And then she told her mother what, what happened. Now, okay, those are unusual times. I'm not saying this is the norm. But what I am saying is, let's not be so stoic on the pulpit in our visits with our people that we can't show them and tell them in one way or another how much we care about their souls. We ought to have tears for the lost. They're on their way to destruction. And then Paul says, I was among you with humility, with tears, and with temptations. Temptations. So we as ministers, of course, are battling temptations, trials. It can be also trials here in the form of attacks from the world, from our own flesh, from the devil, sometimes even from the church, even from people of God. Uh, as uh, Calvin says it, uh, the ministry is no easy and indulgent exercise. It's a battle. It's a battle. Paul says it was by the line and weight of the Jews. The Jews gave him a lot of trouble. And uh, these are religious people. Religious people can give us a lot of trouble when we bring the word of God. But Paul says, never mind. I'm going to go through the temptations and trials. My Lord did it. I'm going to follow him. Never mind. I'm going to hold back nothing profitable to you. I'm not going to be bold and rash and in the sense I'm just going to run rough shot over you and say, come what may of it. No, no. I strive to live with peace, he says in another place. Peaceable conscience with God and with men. But I'm not going to hold back any truth from you. I'm going to bring you the whole counsel of God. I want to stand before God on the day of judgment, he says in this chapter, to be able to say to him, just as I'm saying to you now, I am made free from the blood of all men. Isn't that an amazing statement? I've held nothing back. Now, when you hold nothing back and you make yourself free from the blood of people, you'll also have temptations, trials. It'll come from the world. From the world, the world doesn't understand real, vibrant, essential Christianity, how challenging that is, and how worldly some of the church's members can be. And when you come into their space a little too close about the needs of their soul, maybe, for them, they can kick back. But yes, you need wisdom to know exactly how to handle each soul. Yes. But don't, don't distance yourself. Even if they give you opposition. Don't walk out in the church parking lot afterwards. And if there's three members in your church that are really opposed to you, you avoid them. Actually, just the opposite. Go to them. Shake their hand. Ask them how they're doing. Labor. Labor to win them back, but also to keep giving them the whole counsel of God. And then there's temptations from the devil. And these vary a lot in the ministry, don't they? Some of you know that already. 
sometimes God is very real to you and it seems like the devil's defeated. And as Bunyan says, he's lurking underneath the stairway for a while, but he's going to rear his ugly head soon again. Other times it's a normal amount of opposition from the devil and you feel his reality, but it's not overwhelming. And then there are those more rare seasons where you can just feel hounded by the devil. And he's like as real as God. And it's, it's a troublesome time. And, but Paul says, you press on. Even through those times, the devil who puts wolves in the flock, the devil who whispers in your ears at times, you know, you, you can't be a servant of God. You're, you're thinking that thought or you're doing that thing or you're unworthy and all the temptations you can get about your own authenticity and or your inability. <laughs> oh man, how often a minister is hounded even on the way to church. I can't preach. I just, I've prepared, but I just feel like there's nothing there that's, of, oh God, help me. Just help me one more time, one more time. Often it's the devil on the one side, but God, as Calvin says, overrules the devil and he takes his very temptations and flips them around and does good for your soul. Because when you can't do it and when you're weak and you're vulnerable and you're overwhelmed is usually when you preach the best. It's amazing. How can you explain that? But God trumping the devil. And then there's temptations and trials arising from your own soul. Oh, how, how many times we fear things as ministers that ever take place. Just like everyone else in our congregation worries about things that never happen. We can do the same thing because we care so much about God, about his church, about souls of others. And we worry that this is going to happen or, or that's going to happen. And we really need a good dosage of Isaiah 26, verse three, me, especially that will keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on thee. We just got to stay our minds on God. Keep bringing the whole counsel of God. Keep waiting on God, trusting he will make all things well. Well, I hope I've given you a little window into what Paul went through in those three years with the Ephesians. What a minister of the gospel goes through today. And I hope you find it encouraging because the Lord will carry you through. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears, and with temptations. Let's pray. Gracious God, please bless this text. Please grant that thou wilt use it in the lives of uh, students, also those of us who do preach regularly, and those of us who are ministers. Um, and, and serving the Lord in other capacities in the church. Uh, principally, these things apply to every sphere of service. And we do pray that we would be faithful, that we would have the bona fide, uh, bona fide meaning in good faith, uh, we would have the good faith attitude of being a slave of the Lord, a willing slave to lay down our lives for the kingdom of 
our God, for God himself, the triune God, and for the good of the souls of men and women, teenagers, boys and girls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.